I like I like this illustration. It's a little dramatic, um, and it does break down at some places, but I, I think I think it makes the point. I think it makes it clearly. So imagine with me. I like the imagery. Imagine with me that you're standing in the courtroom and you're standing before the judge, and you can close your eyes if that helps. You don't have to. I'm not gonna be weird. But just imagine that you're standing before the judge and you're guilty. All the evidence has been presented. You know you're guilty, right? The evidence is incontrovertible. And as the judge raises the gavel to strike it down and put your sentence into play, all of a sudden, before that takes place, the back door of the courtroom opens and in walks Jesus. And everybody's just in awe. What is he doing here? And Jesus slowly approaches the judge. Words are exchanged, and the judge looks at you, and he says, Son, daughter, you're free to go. You may leave. And you're thinking, wait a minute. I know I'm guilty. I know the charges. The evidence is there. I don't have a prayer. But the judge looks at you and says, you may go. You're free. You're free. There's no sentence. There's no, nothing for you to pay. You're free. And you're flabbergasted. You have no words. So you get up, somewhat confused, and you walk out. And then as you turn around before the door shuts, you see Jesus bound in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve. And I know that breaks down at some places, but what it shows us is that the gospel is all about a great exchange. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment we deserve so that we could have the righteousness that is his. Amen? Okay, and so we're going to see that because First John 2, I always say this is my favorite passage in First John, uh, but last week was my favorite passage too, so I don't know if I have a favorite passage, but First John 2, this is where it says, but if anyone does sin, which we all sin, right? Even as believers we sin, um, and that's, that's hard because we know that God is a holy and just judge. And sin deserves punishment. And if we're going to sin, we deserve punishment. But the good news is, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning that Jesus did something on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. Our sin was punished, but it was punished in who? In Christ. And we'll unpack all that. Let me read our passage. This is 1 John 2, and we're looking at the first six verses. John begins by saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. Now, anytime you see that language in the Bible, I would underline it and out to the margin put PC for purpose clue. When the writer says, I'm writing for this reason, like the light bulb should come on. Okay, he's telling us the purpose of his letter. So, I'm writing these things to you, why? So that you may not what? So that you may not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, listen, but does not keep his commandments is a what? The liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And this is one of my favorite verses. Whoever says he abides in him, abides in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoa, okay. So if you say you're a Christian, you should be walking like Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we'll answer that question as well. So, a lot to talk about, plenty of time. Um, the title of my sermon, A Gospel That Transforms, and I say this a lot, and I'll keep saying it because I think we forget it. The gospel does two things primarily. It provides forgiveness and transformation. It's a gospel that transforms. Those, here's the big idea, those who are made righteous by the righteous one give evidence by their righteousness. Okay, so... If you've been made righteous by the righteous one, you give evidence of that by your righteousness, righteous living. Um, John, and I talked about this last week and the week before, 
John wants his readers to have assurance. Assurance of what? Salvation. He wants them to know that they know that they're saved. Why? What had happened? There had been a split, a massive split in Exodus, right? A large group of quote-unquote believers, which they weren't believers, but there were those who left the church, right? And they followed after false teaching. And John is writing the church, those who remain, to encourage them, remind them of the gospel, and to help them to see that in Christ you can know that you know that you're saved and a part of God's people. But John wants his readers, the church, to have assurance. And this assurance pertains to two things, doctrine and doing. Okay? What you believe and how you live. We call it right belief, right living, orthodoxy, orthopraxis. So, again, the series of this title, or the, the series title of this uh, book, 1 John, it's Assurance Through Allegiance and Abiding. And we'll talk about that tonight. So our passage is all about assurance. And this assurance is found in two places, right beliefs and right living. Okay? Now, why are both important? We talked about this. If you have right beliefs without right living, you're a hypocrite. If you have right living without right beliefs, that's just moralism, right? But the gospel is about both right doctrine and right living. So our passage is structured very simply. If you're taking notes, and I think I put this in there, verses 1 and 2, right? That's the first half, is all about right belief. Right belief. Who wants to believe the right things? Where are those things found? In the Bible, okay? Verses 3 to 6 is right living. Okay, so right belief, right living. Right living should flow out of right belief. And these two function together to ground the believer's assurance of salvation. Now, where does John start? He doesn't start with right living, and neither do we. We start with right belief, okay? The pattern's important. We're not saved by right living. We're saved to live rightly. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? We saw this last week in 1 John chapter 1, 5-10. to John starts with the gospel. Remember 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5, God is what? He's light. And that amounts to the gospel. It's the message that God, who is holy, self-revealing, and saving, has come to us in the person of who? The person of Jesus Christ to accomplish salvation for sinners. And those who embrace the light, walk in the light. Again, remember that. Those who embrace the light, walk in the light. That was verses 6 to 10 last week. The quick summary of 1 John Chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, those who embrace the light, walk in the light. Now, what do we see in our next passage? This is 1 John 2, 1 to 6. Where does John start? Once again, he starts with the starts with the gospel. Our assurance is rooted in Christ, his finished work, and our faith response to that finished work. However, from our faith in the finished work of Jesus should flow what? A transformed life. And that's what we saw last week. And that's what we're going to see this week as well. Faith in the right doctrine results in right living. Embracing gospel truth, it results in what? Gospel living. Okay. Um, if after embracing the gospel, if there's no life change, no obedience to Christ and his commands then I think it would be unwise to have assurance. Would you agree? I think it would be, right? Again, this is not salvation by works, but assurance by works. The difference is important, okay? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but as Martin Luther said, faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by works or fruit. Again, this passage, hey guys, is all about walking in the light. But let's not forget, assurance starts with allegiance. We are saved again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, so I want to highlight three things from our passage. Number one, what do we learn? Number one, flee to the helper. Flee to the helper. When you hear that language of flee, what do you think? You're running. It's quick movement, maybe desperation. You're looking for... For some kind of shelter, maybe. We were in Dallas this weekend after church, 
we were just there overnight and we got caught in this really bad thunderstorm okay and so when we parked our van we had to run to shelter because you got three kids in tow right we were fleeing to shelter we were in a sense desperate the question i want to begin with is where do you look for help where do you look for help there's a cosmic problem affecting all of humanity and it's what it's sin right and the world looks all over the place to find help a solution to this problem uh, relationships uh, distractions maybe good works self-help books gurus these worldly solutions will not do they will not rectify the problem again where do you look for help we'll start with verse one my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin once more john states the purpose for his letter how does he address his readers what does he call them? And not just children, but my, my little ones, my little children. Why does he do that? It's a term of endearment. Okay, It, it reveals the, the relationship that John had with these believers. He was a spiritual father to them. And as a spiritual father, as an apostle, by the way, which means what? If you're an apostle, you're a, someone said, you're a sent one. Sent by who? Authorized by who? By Christ, right? And so as their spiritual father, but also as a sent one, John expects them to obey his word, which is really God's word, right? So think affection and expectation. And then we have the purpose statement, and this can confuse. Okay, we got to read this in context. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And maybe you're thinking, well, I must not understand First John because I still what? I must not got it, because I, I still mess up, I still sin, I, I still go my way. Like Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I know I should do, I, again, or the things I, I don't want to do, I do, right? Um, so how do we make sense of this purpose statement? I'm writing these things, again, my, my little children, so that you may not sin. All right, so John addresses the problem in verse 1. What does this mean? Does John expect these Christians to never, ever sin again? I don't think so, okay? The expectation is not that they would never sin, as seen in the second half of verse 1, but if anyone does sin, okay? But if anyone does sin, John assumes that those in the church will sin again. Sin is still possible for God's people who walk in the light. This is made clear in 1 John 1, 8. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In 1 John 1, 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a what? A liar, and the truth is not in us. So what does John mean? What is his purpose for the church in writing this letter? So again, let's look at the larger context of 1 John. As we saw last week in 1 John 1, 6, those who walk in the light don't walk in the what? Okay, so those who walk in the light don't walk in the darkness. We're no longer as Christians living in rebellion against God. We no longer deny God's revelation in Jesus Christ. That, again, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. We've learned in 1 John that he's the word of life. He's the fulfillment of God's saving promises. So as those who are walking in the light, we're no longer living for the world, but we're living for who? So walking in the light changes our view of sin. We now see sin differently. When you're not a believer... Sin is kind of your, your natural response. It's, it's your M.O. You live for yourself. You live for the world. All of us are sinners at heart. When you're saved, yes, your sin is forgiven. And because the gospel transforms, you now see sin differently. You see it as an offense against a holy God. Now, because we're walking in the light, we hate sin. Amen? Now, do we still sin? But how do we feel about it? We hate it. We understand that Christ died for our sin, and because of our sin, our attitude and orientation towards sin is transformed as a result of our allegiance to Jesus. John believes in the power of the gospel to transform the believer, giving them new power and new desires. And yet, John also realizes that Christians still what? Still sin. Sin is still a present reality amongst God's people. So again, John doesn't believe that we can be sinless, 
but by the Spirit we can sin less. Okay. Um, seen in First John three six, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. So John writes so that his recipients, those he loves, would not continue in sin. Maybe put in parentheses habitual sin. And more specifically, John is writing so that the church, those who remain, would not fall into the same sin as those who left the church. And again, we've emphasized three things. We call this group the secessionists, right? They, in a sense, seceded from the church. They, they pieced out from the church because they denied the incarnation. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. And they didn't take sin seriously. They pushed for, pushed for a loose morality. So John writes so that the church will overcome and combat what? Sin. But how? 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 Where does John point us to help us sin less? We sin less by doing two things, focusing and doing. And our doing flows out of what we focus on. This is the heart of our passage. Again, where do you look for help? Where does the world look? Relationships, self-help gurus, right? Worldly things. As Christians, where do we look? We look to Christ. Again, our doing flows out of what, or I should say who, we focus on. Again, where do you look for help? Look to Jesus and his finished work. Now, John recognizes what we recognize, which is the reality of sin in God's people. He addresses it head-on with the good news of Jesus Christ. And let us not forget that the good news only makes sense when we understand it in the proper context of the bad news. Right? Where's the bad news? We're sinners. We're sinners. So John writes so that God's people, the church, would not continue in sin. But what if we do sin? What if we do sin? According to John, Sin is still a reality for God's people. Does that mean that we're out? Does that mean that we're hopeless? Well, of course not. I became a follower of Jesus a pretty long time ago now, when I was 12. I'll be 40 this year. But I became a believer in a church where I rested restlessly. Does that make sense? I rested restlessly on God's hand, thinking that at any moment, I could be thumped off. I had what I call mechanical bull assurance. As long as you hold on, you're good. But what does the Bible teach us in John 10? What does Jesus say? Nobody can take you out of my hand. And nobody can take you out of my Father's hand. Oh, right? The Lord has us. He has his people. Now, by God's grace, I don't have mechanical bull insurance. I have John 10 insurance and assurance that the one who saved me has me. He's got me. So what does John tell us in our passage? Verses 1 and 2. But if anyone does sin, uh, this, is, this is the meat. Okay, This is the heart of the passage. We're going to unpack this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So again, John once again points to the solution. Here we have the helper. These verses address our new position because of Christ's payment. So these verses essentially give us the cause and the effect of the gospel. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. I count five truths. Now, we got to get this, guys. Five truths revealed in our passage. These are massive, monumental truths that we have to get. Number one, we have an advocate. Amen. Number two... He is with the Father. That is everything, okay? And I'll explain why. Number three, he is Jesus Messiah. Number four, I'm going to take this one at a time. Number four, he is righteous. And number five, he is the propitiation for our sins. So I'm going to put all these together and then take them one at a time. Jesus the Messiah is our righteous advocate with the Father and the propitiation for our sins. Okay, what does all this mean, and what are the implications of these truths? Number one, we have an advocate. What's an advocate? It's a parakletos. It's one who helps another. 
okay? It's a helper, one who appears in another's behalf, a lawyer, essentially, a mediator, an intercessor, a helper. We have a helper. Jesus is our helper. Daniel Aiken writes, he is the cleanser of sin. That's chapter 1, verse 7. The forgiver of sin. That's chapter 1, verse 9. And the helper when we do sin. And that's our pastor. So how does he help us specifically? We have an advocate. And we discover later in that passage, it's Jesus. How is he our helper? What has he done to help us? Well, we know that he stands in for us. He represents those who trust in him before the Father. He intercedes for us. He prays for us constantly, which is nuts. Robert Murray McShane said something like this. He said, if you could just look into the throne of God and see Jesus praying for you, what a wonder it would do. Right? I mean, just can you imagine? I mean, we know that's true, but to see it. He's our mediator who gives us access to the Father. Jesus is for us, which brings us to our next truth. We have an advocate. Who's our advocate? Jesus, number two, he's with the Father. Now, why does that matter, that he's with the Father? How do we know that the Father will hear the Son's intercession, his prayers on our behalf? Because he is with the How do we know the Father is going to hear our prayers? Because the Son is with the Father, and he who is with the Father gives us access to the, to the Father. Jesus, as our advocate with the Father, brings us, oh, this is Colossians 3, before the Father, in his presence. He has blazed a trail back to the Father for us. Question remains, though, guys, and this is, you're going to see how logical John is. Every step, every truth builds on the next. So he's our advocate, but how? Because he's with the Father. How can he help us? Because he's with the Father. He gives us access to the Father, but how is Jesus able to stand on our behalf? Number three, he's righteous. He's righteous. We are represented by the one who is perfectly righteous. We are counted righteous because he is righteous. Amen? We are able to be in the Father's presence because Jesus, the righteous, is in the Father's presence. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that Jesus' righteous refers to his moral character, his perfect moral character, his perfect obedience to the law of God. He did what we could not do because of our what? Because of our sin. But now we who believe in him are counted as, as righteous. Again, it's, it's much like the illustration where he walks into the courtroom and he takes our place. There's an exchange. We get his Righteousness, he takes our sinfulness. Amen? He takes our punishment. What assurance to know that the one who is with the Father, who is our helper, is completely and totally righteous. To know that our righteousness is secure in the one who is totally righteous. We have right standing before God because of the righteous Son of God who represents us before the before the Father. Um, I want to read this quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, Our salvation rests not only in Christ's atoning death, but also in his life of perfect, active obedience. Now listen, this is really good. He says, If to secure our redemption, Christ only needed to make an atonement for us, he could have come down from heaven and gone directly to the cross. Right? but he also had to fulfill all righteousness by submitting at every point to the law. By his sinless life, he achieved positive merit, which merit is imputed to all who put their faith in him. And here's the summary. Probably, why didn't you say this, Chris? Here's the summary. Christ not only died for us, but he lived for us as well. Amen? He didn't just die for us. He lived for us as well. Number four. Number four. So number one, we have an advocate. Number two, he's with the Father. Number three, he is he's righteous. And number four, he is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Messiah. He's the king. We've been paying attention in John. Messiah or Christ refers to the one who came to 
rescue and good rule over God's people. The king's job is to represent his people, to go before them, to secure their rescue through battle. Think of David and Goliath. That he is Messiah calls to mind Jesus' saving work on our behalf. He is the true king who has come to provide true rescue from our sin and separation from God. How do we know Jesus is the Christ? His miracles and the ultimate miracle, which Paul talks about in Romans 1, he's declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Amen. Number five, he is the propitiation. And I wonder, is that a word that we use in our daily vocabulary? Man, I'm feeling propitiated today. That's not right. What does that word mean, right? He is the propitiation for our sins. It comes from the Greek word helasmos. It refers to appeasement or satisfaction. God's wrath was satisfied. How? By what means? What was the instrument used to satisfy God's wrath against us, guilty sinners? Christ's death, right? Now again, we spent some time talking about this last week. It's from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. How? How can he forgive us? How? We're sinful. God has to punish sin. Otherwise, he's acting against his character. He did punish sin. And he punished it from who? He punished it in his son. For us. Jesus lovingly stepped in, putting himself where we belong as the object of God's wrath against sin. I would argue that this is the most important of all Christian doctrines. Amen? Jesus lovingly stepped in, putting himself where we belong as the object of God's wrath for our sin. Without Christ's sacrifice, without him taking what we deserved, we could never be in the presence of God. It's true. I once heard a pastor say it best. I mentioned this last week. Christ was treated the way we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. I'm uh, still reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my boys. We're uh, about three books in now. And I, I love still my favorite. I don't know if they're my favorite. But I like, you know, the one that we all know. The most famous one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I, I, I love what happens with Edmund. I mean, Edmund is such a rotten kid, right? He's such a little snotty punk. I mean, I, you don't like him. You're meant not to like him, right? He's not endearing. Um, he gets into trouble. He betrays his family. And yet who steps in? According to the, the law of Narnia, because of this great travesty, he deserves to be killed. But Aslan, right, the Christ-like figure, steps in and takes his place, dies in the place of the guilty. It's a reminder of what? It's a pointer to what? What was Lewis trying to show us? What Christ did for us at the cross, amen? He took what we deserved. So Jesus is our helper, both in securing our salvation through his death on the cross and by representing those who trust in him before the Father. Now, we can't ignore the final phrase from verse 2, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yahweh for the nations. We see that all the way back in Genesis 12, 3. Through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's heartbeat is for the nations. Therefore, we're called to go to the, the nations. We can send money. We can send missionaries, or we can even consider going. But to know that God has people everywhere, right? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, if you read the book of Revelation, what do we see? Every tribe, tongue, and language group, by every nation will be represented, praising the Lamb, worshiping Him. So, already John has instructed the church and how to respond to sin. What did we learn last week? What should we do when we sin? First John 1 John 1.9, we should confess it. We should admit it, right? So in 1 John 1.9, we learn that we are to confess our sins, and we learn that this action comes with a promise. And this promise only makes sense in light of 1 John 2, 1 and 2. 
We talked about this last week. God's justice is seen at the cross. Here, John is seen unpacking the gospel. According to John, the gospel concerns a king, a king who lives a life that we should have lived but could not live because of our sin. And then he dies the death we deserve in our place to bring us before God. And it's only by trusting in that king, Jesus, that we can be made righteous through his representation. The cause of the gospel is Christ's death in our place to satisfy the wrath and holiness of God. And the effect or result is seen in God's people resting as righteous before God in Christ, their new representative. Um, I had this book idea for years, and I've just kind of tinkered with it. But uh, the theme of newness, I, I like biblical theology. In biblical theology, you trace themes that are prevalent throughout Scripture, right? And there's this theme of newness. There's a new creation, right? There's a new covenant. Uh, talks about a new king, right? And again, if you have Jesus, you have a new representative. Amen? A new representative. All right, that first point is the majority of my sermon, but we're not done. Let me ask this question. You trust in Jesus? Do you love him? Why? He rescued me. Amen. He, he died for me. He rescued me. He did what I couldn't do. How do we show gratitude to the Lord for his rescuing work in our lives? What should flow out of our faith? We're not saved by this, but we're saved for this. And what is that? A, a life of worship, right? Obedience. That brings us to point number two. What should flow from faith in the Savior? Those who flee to the Helper obey and imitate the Helper. Who got it right? Anybody? You tried. I know you did. Yeah. I talked about Those who flee to the helper. So again, we flee to the helper. We flee to Jesus. We trust in him alone who can make us righteous. Amen? But those who flee to the helper obey and imitate the helper. Verses 3 to 6. Here's the second half of our passage. And by this we... Now listen. This is important. Who wants assurance? It's a beautiful thing. Amen? I've met a lot of people in this world in different places who have no assurance because of their flawed and erroneous belief system. But if you're a Christian, you can have assurance. Amen? What does John say? And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, we can have assurance. It's a big word. It's an important word. We can have assurance of our salvation on the basis of our faith. And more importantly, the object of our faith, right? Our assurance is based on Christ, and who he is, and what he did. However, we must remember that the gospel not only provides forgiveness, but the key word, transformation, real life change. According to Paul in Titus 1, knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. So the two go hand in hand. Gospel knowledge results in gospel living. Like we saw last week with 1 John chapter 1, 5-10, our passage this week starts off with a grandiose declaration about Jesus followed by several conditional statements. What's a conditional statement? If this, then this. Now, before looking at these statements, I want to make sure that we catch the theme here, and it's knowledge. Who likes knowledge? Knowledge is important. The Bible has a lot to say about knowledge. It's important that we know things, right? If you were here two weeks ago, not here, but on Sunday two weeks ago, I talked about propositions, right? These are truth claims about Jesus. It matters what we know about Jesus. You know Jesus? I do. What do you know about him? I know he was a good man that cared for orphans and widows and puppy dogs. Okay, you don't know the right things. It matters what you know. Knowledge is important. What do you know about Jesus? I know that he died for my sins, that he's the Son of God, that he's fully God, that he loves me, that he rose again after he died on the third day, and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes for me. He represents me. I get his righteousness. He took my sin. 
that deserve that. Gracious and merciful Savior. It matters what you know. Amen? Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Oh my goodness. Let's just count how many times you hear the word know. Okay? And guess what? In the Greek it's the same amount of times. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him. Verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. So John wants believers to know. He wants us to know. He uses the same Greek word for knowing each time. It's the verb ginosko, which, again, Greek's funny. Depending on the context, can have different meanings. Just like in English, right? Ball. Ball can even be a verb now. I can ball. I really can. I'm not very good at any sport right now. But I had a ball tonight at Bible study. I had a good time, right? Hey, pass me that ball, right? So, again, now it's a physical object. See what I'm saying? So, in Greek, depending on the context, ginosko can have different meanings. In verse 3, in verse 4, listen, where the object of knowing is Jesus, gnosko refers to a relational knowledge. The kind of knowledge that, Max, you have of your bride. You know her, bro. You know Katie, man. You know her intimately. That's your boo. That's your babe. You know her, man. Right? That, that's, that's a deep knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. I'm sorry I'm picking on you, man. But that's what gnosko means here. It's a deep Relational knowledge. Now, it's also used, verses 3 and 5, we have the two phrases, and by this we know, verse 5, again, by this we know, there, knowing has to do with knowing something to be true, or knowing something to be the case. It denotes assurance or confidence. So let's put these together, okay? How can we know, have assurance, that we know Jesus relationally? How can we know that we know him? <laughs> Who wants to know that they know Jesus relationally? Knowledge of the Lord, relational knowledge, is accompanied by action. Once again, we see the fruit that flows out of our faith. John is going to present us with three evidences that will help to undergird our assurance that we know Jesus. We can know that we know the Lord if, number one, we keep his commandments, verses three to four, and number two, keep his word. Well, that's the same thing, right? Yes, yes, but there's two different words being used here, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so again, we can know that we know the Lord if we keep his commandments and keep his word, so we're going to take these first two together, but I'm going to make separate comments about each one. What are his commandments? The word commandments here in the Greek Intolas refers not only to Jesus' commands, but the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Since Christ, throughout his ministry, affirms the Old Testament, right? Luke 24, twice, he says, it all points to me, okay? And then he authorizes his disciples in John 14 to 16 to write Scripture. I think, and I'm not picking on you, but if you have a red-letter Bible, it can be misleading. Because it makes you think that if Jesus said it, it must be more important than the rest of Scripture. No. What does Paul tell us? All Scripture is God-breathed. There's, there's a such thing today as red-letter Christians. It's a movement. It's these people who only pay attention to the red letters. So Paul, eh, I'm not really a Paul follower. Well, I hope you're not if you're a Jesus follower, but who authorized Jesus? How does Paul begin his letters? Paul, a servant or an apostle, of Christ. You have a red letter Bible, it's fine, but don't forget all scripture is God breathed. All right? Uh, let me skip down. No, I got a little time. So John's language picks up on Jesus' language in the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28:19, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The verb to observe is the same verb used in 1 John. John Stott writes, this verb expresses the idea of watchful, observant obedience. This speaks of the authority of Jesus. It's his commands. Already, John has referred to Jesus as the one who has existed from everlasting. He's the word of life, the life, the eternal life, the Christ, the one who is with the Father, the one whose death is intimately tied to our forgiveness, our advocate, and the righteous one. And here we see that it's by obeying his commands that we can know that we know that we're saved. 
And then we have his word. So his commandments and his word. His word is more general. It moves beyond just his commands, but to all his teachings. So taken together, his commands and his words cover all of Scripture. Christ's people are to be word people. Okay? You're a Christian. You're to be a person of the book. What book is that? Man, I sure love Jesus, but I just don't have time to read the Bible. Boring. It's archaic. I just, you know, give me Jesus, but keep the Bible. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, if you obey, you'll keep my commandments. What is stated of the one who keeps his word? Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. I'm going to unpack the phrase. In him truly the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? Perfected. It's the verb. Tell you who. It's kind of fun to say. It means to be brought to completion or to reach a goal. What is the intended goal of our love for God? We love God, we're going to obey God, right? Our love for God is meant to move us toward obedience. If you love Him, it's going to be seen in your what? In your obedience. Stop right some more time. True love for God is... Now listen to this, friends. True love for God is expressed... Not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. Amen? You love God, you're going to obey His Word. There's a correlation between loving God and obeying God. And I love Him. I just don't want to obey Him. I want to kind of do my own thing. I prayed a prayer a long time ago. I should be covered. No! If you love Him, you want to obey Him. That is the evidence of a new heart. Amen? Now we're going to do that perfectly. Still going to sin. Yes, but what do we have? Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation. Again, John 14, 23, um, very similar to 14, 15. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He'll keep my word. Hey, do you love Jesus? Then keep his word. Amen? Those who know Jesus love Jesus, and those who love Jesus obey Jesus. If you know Jesus, you love him. If you know him relationally, then you love him. And if you love him, then you obey him. We can know Jesus because of verses 1 and 2. He's our helper. He died in our place. He represents us. He satisfied God's wrath for us. Amen? We can know him because of verses 1 and 2. And we ultimately love him because of verses 1 and 2. Right? Why do we love him? He's our advocate. He's our propitiation. He's satisfied God's wrath in our place, a wrath that we deserve. He's our Savior. We love Him. We can know Him because He made the first move. He took the initiative. That goes back to 1 John 1, 1 1-4. We love Him because He first loved us. It's 1 John 4, 19. Furthermore, we love one another because we love Him and want to obey Him. <laughs> if you love Him, you got to love each other. Amen? This is discipleship, plain and simple. Those who know the Lord love the Lord, and those who love the Lord obey the Lord. There's no discipleship without obedience. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Obedience is how we demonstrate our allegiance to King Jesus, our love for the King. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ, right? Salvation's a gift, amen? We don't deserve it. We can't do anything to earn it. And yet we are saved. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, hey, look what I did, Jesus, you owe me, no. It's grace. But according to verse 10, we are saved for works. God glorifying good works. And these works flow out of a knowledge of God that transforms the individual. A knowledge that produces love, a love that moves us to obey. Now, this doesn't amount to perfect obedience. Thankfully, we're not saved by our obedience, but by the obedience of the righteous one who took our place at the cross. However, because of Christ's saving work and the giving of the Spirit, we can obey. And more than that, we want to. Amen? We want to. And I'll put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? So the willingness, like, who's ever had to go to work? Everybody raise your hand. Who always feels like going to work? Don't raise your hand, because not, we don't always feel like going to work. But here's what Paul is telling us. Not only does Jesus enable our working, he gives us the power to work. He also gives us the desire, the willingness behind our working he enables. That's what the gospel does. It does provide forgiveness, but transformation as well. Last point, and then we're done. Number three. My favorite verse in this passage. Well, I like verse two a lot too. Uh, verse six. Walk in the same way in which he walked. Surely you got that one if you're going ahead. Okay. Verse six. Whoever says he abides. That's a really important word. It's used 23 times in 1 John. It's used quite a bit in John's gospel. Well. It's the Greek word meno. Meno. Like a minnow. You know, if I'm going to go fish for crappie, I want you know, a bag of minnows. But it's meno. And if the, if the minnows remain in the bag, I can fish longer. So that's a mnemonic device for remain. Never mind. You know, when I was learning Greek and Hebrew, I had to do stuff like that. Just the vocabulary was so immense. Anyways. Um, evidence of our salvation is found in us walking in the same way in which Jesus walked. Who's terrified right now? Don't be. What does this look like to walk like Jesus? Jesus is the paradigm. He's the example. How did Jesus live? Well, he, he preached the kingdom of God. Amen. He met physical needs. He gave himself. He served. I think John 13. He had compassion on the poor, the diseased, the outcast. He loved people. He obeyed the Father. Okay? Think fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who did those things perfectly? Who does God give us to do those things? Spirit. So that we look like Christ. And when we look like Christ, who gets the glory? God does. Amen? Obedience to... In living like Jesus, now get this, obedience to and living like Jesus are not the means. They're not the means of salvation. But rather, they're the overflow of faith in Christ. The result of faith in Christ. The evidence of faith. Alright, so I told you I'd talk about this word abiding, meno, remain. 23 times it's used in 1 John. It means to remain, continue in. Um, it's used in John 15, the vine and the branches. Now, again, a branch connected to the vine, right? If you take away the branch, what's going to happen to it? If you, if you cut it off, it's going to wither and die. It depends upon the vine for life and sustenance. In the same way, we depend upon who? We're clinging to Christ. Right? That's what it means to remain in him. The minnow. There's a, a doctrine that I think has been neglected. It's one the Puritans talked about quite a bit. It's one that's seeing a resurgence in writings today, thankfully, but it's union with Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? It's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Union with Christ means that you're in Christ and Christ is in you by faith in Jesus. We're hidden in Christ. It's already been hinted at by John in 1 John 2.1, where Jesus is described as our advocate. What's true of him is now true for us. He's righteous. Those who are in him by faith are righteous. He represents us and dwells in us powerfully by the Spirit. This answers the question of how. How do we do 1 John 2.6, friends? Whoever claims to be in him or remain in him must walk in the same way in which he walked. How do we do that? Through union with Christ. How can we live like Jesus? Because through our faith in him, we are united to him and thus have access to his power. Amen? Only those who are in Christ by faith can live as new creation people. Again, for John, abiding in Jesus speaks not only of our initial union with Christ through faith, but the continuation of life in Christ. Are you in Christ? Yes or no? Then you have access to whose power? Christ's power. To live like who? To live like Christ. 
to abide or to remain is to live out of our union with Christ. Again, I like the illustration. I love to vacuum. It's like mowing the carpet, right? But a vacuum cleaner unplugged is no good. But as soon as you plug it in to the power source, it comes alive. If you've been united to Christ, you're connected to Christ, you're in Christ, you have access to his power to live like Christ. So when you think union with Christ or abiding in Christ, think new position and new power to live as the king's people. Simply put, if we're going to summarize all that we've talked about, I know it's been a lot, our behavior bolsters our assurance. It's a litmus test provided by John to determine the genuineness of our faith. But let us not forget the order. What comes first is what? What comes first? Faith. Faith. We don't come to know God through our obedience, thankfully, because all of us would fail. Our salvation is not predicated upon our obedience, but rather our obedience flows out of our faith. And that is why John starts with doctrine. Doctrine that when embraced by faith should move us to obey. So assurance is based on looking to the cross and living cross-shaped lives. Do you have assurance of salvation today? Okay. Again, think verses 1 and 2. If you're a Christian, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. Where do you look for help? Where do you look for help? Only Jesus can give you true and lasting assurance because only he is the way. And that truth has implications not just for us, but for everyone in our lives. Do your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, your friends, do they have the assurance that only Jesus can provide? How will they ever know unless we tell them, right? Guys, listen, I have done life with people who don't have the assurance that we have, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. But how will they ever have that assurance unless we tell them? About who? About Jesus. Only by looking to the cross and having cross-shaped lives can anyone have assurance of salvation. So it matters what you believe, and it matters how you live. But if you believe the right things, you'll live the right way. By your power? No. By his power and for his glory. Amen? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But faith is never what? Never alone. It's accompanied by Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and these reminders. I know this was a lot, but I pray that what we would take away would be that, Jesus, you are the Savior, and we're not. And you lived for us, and you died for us, and you rose again, and you ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we can know that we know that we know that we're right with God if we have you as our Lord and Savior. And we're thankful that the gospel, the good news, what you did, Jesus, doesn't just provide forgiveness. And we're eternally grateful for that. But it provides and results in real life change, which is evidence that the gospel has truly taken root in our hearts and lives. So, Father, help us to believe the right things and help us to live the right way for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.